excuse me. Are we good? We on? Okay, good. All right, well, it's good to be here. Uh, did everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Everybody hopefully uh, enjoyed the holiday. It's probably a little different than it's been in years past, but we all made the best of it. Um, obviously, we're not sure what's going to happen next with the pandemic. Um, I do have to say that uh, I'm very much hoping not to become the answer to a trivia question. Um, if you remember back in March, a certain sermon in Matthew 5 about adultery, lust, and why godliness is sexy. That was the last sermon before the first lockdown. Now, we don't know what's going to happen next, of course, but um, regardless of what happens with the pandemic or what procedures take place, as Jeremy said, we're going to trust God, we're going to honor the authorities, we're going to be faithful, and we're going to love others, no matter what happens. And today, praise God, we're gathered here, and we're going we're to hear from the Word of God. So if you're new to the church or if you're watching our live stream for the first time, we're preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, today we're in Matthew chapter 9, and we're coming to the end of this section that has sort of had a theme question running through it. What sort of man is this? As Jesus has begun this ministry of uh, healing and miraculous signs, everybody's not quite sure what to make of him. Everybody's not quite sure who he is. Or what his purpose is. You know, is he just performing random acts of miraculousness or is there some larger thing going on? You know, everybody's not sure. Now, some of this uncertainty and some of this confusion about who Jesus is is completely understandable. See, the people of Israel had been specifically taught that God is not a man. It actually says in the Bible that God is not a man. Several places. There's a verse in Numbers 23, 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of humanity that he should change his mind. So God is not a man. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 4 where Moses says to the people of Israel, when God appeared at Mount Sinai, you didn't see anything, you just heard a voice. Therefore, don't make an idol in the form of a man or a woman, a beast of the ground, bird of the air, fish of the sea, lights of the heavens, all the creation categories of Genesis 1, they're not supposed to make an idol out of, which means... They're not supposed to think that God is a man. So the people of Israel have been taught that God is not a man, and they're not supposed to think that God is a man. But here comes this man doing things that only God can do. So what does that mean? Well, he can't be a God because God's not a man, but he's doing things only God can do. So what? God! We're running out of categories here. Now, when I was in college, I once took a class on Islam, just for curiosity's sake and also for comparison's sake. And the class was taught by a Muslim scholar, you know, a guy who knows his stuff. And one point that he made in class more than once, because he knew he had Christians in his class, he said, in Islamic belief, Muhammad was a prophet and nothing more. Okay, Muhammad was not God, Muhammad is not the son of God, Muhammad is not God in the flesh, Muhammad is not any part of God. In Islamic belief, Muhammad was a prophet, nothing more. In Islamic belief, God cannot become flesh, God can't be part of the creation, God can't have children like people do, God is totally other, so Muhammad was a prophet, nothing more. And that's also what they believe about Jesus. They believe Jesus was a prophet and nothing more. And there were probably a lot of people in Jesus' day who would have been perfectly willing to accept the idea that Jesus was a prophet and nothing more, except whenever prophets spoke for God, they had to preface it with, thus says Yahweh, right? 
If Isaiah or Jeremiah or somebody said, thus says the Lord, whatever came next was the very words of God, right? But Jesus, when he taught, Jesus would say, well, you've read where it says in the Bible this, but I say, here's what it means. Jesus didn't seem to need to invoke any outside authority in order to speak. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 7, the one thing that stands out the most about Jesus to the people is that he taught as one who had authority, not like all the other teachers. Jesus didn't just quote rabbis like everybody else. He taught on his own authority. Now, as we've gone through chapters 8 and 9, coming up to our passage today, Jesus has begun to reveal sort of the, the nature and the scope of his authority one step at a time. So the first thing we learned about Jesus' authority in chapter 8 is that Jesus has authority over sickness, right? Leprosy, paralysis, fevers, physical ailments. Jesus had the authority to command sickness to leave, and it would just leave, as the centurion understood Next thing we found out was that Jesus has authority over nature, right? The apostles get in a boat, and they sail to the other side of the sea, and there's a life-threatening storm, and Jesus just commands the storm on his own say-so, and the storm vanishes. You know, we all sang, rain, rain, go away, come again another day when we were kids, but it probably didn't work. Jesus commanded a storm that was threatening to kill everybody, and it obeyed him. He had authority over nature. Next thing we found out was that Jesus had authority over the supernatural. They get to the other side of the sea, and Jesus casts out demons from two men in this Gentile region. So Jesus shows that he has authority over the supernatural. Next thing we found out when he gets back to Galilee is that Jesus has authority over sin and over sinners. Jesus is able to actually pronounce forgiveness of someone's sins against God. And when Jesus cured the paralytic and pronounced forgiveness... It wasn't forgiveness against sins against Jesus personally. Jesus probably never met the paralytic. He was pronouncing forgiveness of the paralytic sins against God. And that's what was so striking to everybody. So Jesus has authority over sin, over sinners. And last week we found out that Jesus has authority over life and death. Now if you remember Mike's sermon last week, Jesus goes to the synagogue ruler's house whose daughter had just died and resurrects her from the dead. And the last verse of the passage says, and the report spread throughout that district. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) That might tend to draw attention. (laughs) You know, people in the ancient world were not medical experts, but they understood the fact that dead people stay dead. Okay, dead people don't just spontaneously resurrect. (laughs) So when Jesus walks into a dead girl's bedroom and takes her hand and lifts her up and raises her up, and she's alive, yeah, it might tend to get noticed. So Jesus had authority over life and death. Now, if you scan that list of all the things that Jesus has authority over, you, know, you might be wondering, what, else could, what other possible thing could Jesus have authority over besides sickness, nature, supernatural, sin, life, and death? What other kind of authority is there? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at Matthew 9. Uh, if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible app, by the way, if you don't have a Bible app, there's a very good free Bible app that you can download if you want. It's called Version. Y-O-U version. You can just download it to your device if you want. It's free. You get any Bible and any translation you want if you don't have a Bible app. But we're going to be looking at Matthew 9. We're going to start at verse 27. And let's, uh, let's look at what the Word of God says. All right. <clears throat> As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Sorry. They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. All right, this is the word of God. All right, so <clears throat> there's two different accounts in this passage, and we're going to look at them both. Uh, the first is Jesus heals two blind men. So basically what happens is when Jesus leaves the ruler's house, whose daughter he resurrected from the dead, he moves on, and you get the impression from the text that crowds have begun to follow him. He's starting to draw a crowd. There's lots of people around. So he's going on his way, and two blind men somehow find out that Jesus is in the vicinity, and so they start basically shouting after him, presumably to be heard above the crowd. Right? They cry after him, Have mercy on us, son of David! And there's a couple unusual details about this. Instead of Jesus just turning around and talking to them and fulfilling their need on the spot, Jesus brings them inside a house, like away from people, and has a private conversation with them and asks them in private, do you believe I can actually do this? And they say, yes, yes, we do, we do. And so Jesus said, all right, then it's done. And they are healed of their blindness. And then it says, Jesus gives them a stern warning not to make it known. That's kind of odd. <clears throat> now, stern warning, that's, that's an unusual choice of terminology. I mean, stern warning. I mean, <clears throat> those of us who are fathers, I think, probably know what a stern warning is if we have kids of a certain age. You know, I, <clears throat> I love my children, and my children love me, and we generally have a good relationship, and I try to give them a certain amount of latitude in our relationship. But every once in a while, there's a certain tone that gets used. There's a certain volume level that might get reached, which lets them know that their latitude has run out, and it's time for them to do what they're being told or face consequences. Right? Stern warning. That's what a stern warning is, generally. Now, these blind men were not 10 years old, and Jesus was not their biological dad, but that's basically what a stern warning is. The volume gets ratcheted up to here, and there's an implied threat of consequences. Stern warning. So why the private conversation and why the stern warning? Well, the first reason, which is not the main point of the passage, but it's worth, it's worth mentioning. Um, there is such a thing as a crowd mentality. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's easy to sing when everybody else is singing, right? It's easy to shout amen in church when everybody agrees. But what, Jesus wanted to know what these people believed when nobody else was around. Well, there's no crowd energy to feed off of, where there's no pressure on Jesus to perform for the crowd, there's no distractions. He brings them inside a house and says, all right, what do you really believe? That's a fair question. That's a fair question for us. Yeah, it's great that we're here, and we love gathering together, and it's a good thing for us to gather, but at some point we all have to answer the question, what do we actually believe about Jesus when nobody else is around? Now, the second reason... The second reason, I think, for why the private conversation and why the stern warning has to do with the title 
that the blind men used to address Jesus, son of David. Now, up till now, people have been addressing Jesus as teacher, master, lord, sir. Now, those are all honorific titles, but they don't really mean anything specific. You know, there were a lot of teachers around. The people may have thought unusual that Jesus taught on his own authority instead of quoting rabbis like everybody else, but an unusual teacher is still a teacher. You know, calling Jesus master or Lord is not unusual either. It's a term of superiority, right? But there's a lot of human situations in which one person is the superior and the other person is the subordinate. Calling Jesus master or Lord as a term of superiority, there's nothing really unusual about that. But when these blind men call Jesus the son of David, that is specific. That is going to start to bring who Jesus is squarely into focus. Son of David. See, Son of David was a messianic title. Son of David was a title from the Old Testament that was going to be used of the messianic king. <clears throat> it was, it wasn't just, he wasn't just a superior person or a great teacher or any other thing. He was the actual Messiah, the king. Now, the people of Israel were expecting a Messiah. The people had been promised a Messiah in the Old Testament, and so they were expecting one. But what kind of Messiah? Hmm. Well, in a nutshell, the people were basically hoping for a military political Messiah who was going to raise up an army, drive the Romans out of Jerusalem, and basically set up the Messiah as king in Jerusalem and rule from the throne of David forever, and all the Old Testament promises about the glorious messianic age and all the nations will come and worship on God's holy mountain was going to be fulfilled right then. That's how they thought it was going to go down. When the Messiah comes, we're going to raise up an army, we're going to get the Romans out of here, we're going to get our country back and set Jesus up on the throne in Jerusalem and then he's just going to rule the nation forever and that's going to be the messianic age. That's, what, that's how they thought it was going to go down. But here's the problem. Why did Jesus actually come to earth? The people had their own ideas, but what did Jesus think about why he came to earth? What did Jesus say about why he came to earth? That's a good question. I actually wrote a paper on this once. Yeah, I'm a theology nerd, so what? I looked up every single purpose statement in the Bible about why Jesus came to earth. Anytime Jesus said, for this reason I have come, or anytime Paul or John or some New Testament writer said, this is why Jesus came, I looked up every single purpose statement in the Bible for why Jesus came to earth. And every single one of them, in one way or another, had to do with the salvation of sinners. Like Mark 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Salvation. Or Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost after Zacchaeus' transforming encounter. And by the way, that statement and the parable that went with it was a specific correction to the idea that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to conquer and set up the kingdom. That statement was made to correct that very idea in Luke 19. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 15. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You know, salvation. This is why he came. <clears throat> Even the name Jesus means salvation, right? 
Yeshua. It's a noun. It's used in the Old Testament. It means deliverance or salvation. In the very first chapter of this gospel in Matthew 1, when the angel appears to Joseph, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' coming to earth had nothing whatsoever to do with the Romans and their government other than the Romans were all sinners in need of a savior like everybody else. The best reason I can think of for why the stern warning to these blind men is I think Jesus, what Jesus did not want is these blind men trying to whip up messianic fever and start trying to muster an army and say, hey, the king's here. Great, let's get an army. Get your swords, get your weapons. Get, let's get together. We're going to go to Jerusalem and conquer the Romans. Let's go! That's what Jesus did not want. He said, that's not why Jesus came. And so, <clears throat> um, when he, tell, he heals these blind men, says, don't tell anybody. Jesus has to know that as soon as they run into people, they knew that they'll find out about the healing. But what Jesus did not want was a bunch of wannabe Minutemen trying to start a revolution. That's not why he came. All right, if we look at the second healing, um, after the incident with the blind men and they get healed, someone brings to Jesus a man who's under the influence of a demon. And um, you know, Mike had preached a few weeks ago about the, the exorcism and the demon being cast out in the Gentile region, so I don't want to go over that too much. Um, other than to say the thing that happened in, earlier in Matthew 8, the people in Galilee had probably not heard about that. You know, it was in a different region. They crossed the Sea of Galilee. They were in a Gentile region. They cast out demons, and they came straight back. So the people in Galilee had probably not heard about that. You know, they didn't have social media back then, so you know, the people in Decapolis couldn't just get on Twitter and say hashtag exorcism and get it trending in Galilee. You know, they didn't have all that back then. So when Jesus performs his exorcism in Galilee, this is probably the first time they've seen this. And with this particular demon possession, it's kind of unusual because normally when demons were influencing people, there would be visible you know, manifestations, right? I mean, either the demon would speak, the demon would converse with Jesus, or the demon would cause some kind of like destructive behavior, like would cause the person to destroy things or harm themselves or that kind of thing. There were usually signs that would indicate demon possession or demon oppression or whatever. But here, the only thing it says is that the demon was preventing a human from speaking. Okay, so Jesus casts out the demon and the man is then able to speak. And okay, that's about all the text tells us. In this particular case, the detail that the author seems most concerned with is not the exorcism, but the reactions to the exorcism. Because this is the first time they've seen this, and so the, the crowd, the general rank and file of Israel, marvel. Whoa, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, which is probably true. But then there's this other reaction from the Pharisees who start to put together this really bizarre accusation. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. <clears throat> now, who are the Pharisees? just to kind of give a little background. We've heard about them a little bit so far in Matthew. Jesus has kind of referred to them during the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but who are they? Well, uh, the word Pharisee loosely translated means separatist. Um, basically, it got started, 
The Pharisees got started when the Jews came back from the Babylonian exile. If you remember way back, a few years ago we preached through Exodus. People of Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus through the Red Sea. Then they had to wander for 40 years. Eventually they got settled in the Promised Land. And from that point on, there was about 800 years of almost nonstop idolatry. Okay, the people of Israel, they were constantly worshiping idols. They hardly ever worshiped God. It was like nonstop idolatry for about 800 years. So finally God said, all right, enough is enough. And God sent the Babylonians. They conquered them, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, and took the people out of the land into exile. When the people got back, the spiritual leaders like Ezra and some of his people, they got together and they said, all right, look, this is not going to happen again. Okay? We are not going to worship idols. We are not going to make the same mistakes our ancestors made. We are going to read the Word of God. We are going to study the Word of God. We are going to know what it means. We are going to apply it in every single situation. This idolatry nonsense not going to happen. So there was this group that wanted just strict observance of the Word of God. No outside influences. No ungodliness. We are just going to focus totally on the Word of God. Then later on when Greek philosophy started to become a thing, the Pharisees started to become called Pharisees then, separatists. We don't want any Greek philosophy polluting our religion, so keep that separate. We don't want any Roman polytheism or anything else. We just want to focus totally on the Word of God, no ungodly influences. That's what the Pharisees were, separatists. They believe in strict observance of the Word of God, which, by the way, is not a bad thing by itself if it's done for the right reasons. The problem is, as time went on, it became less and less about honoring God and more and more about fulfilling their self-righteous need to feel righteous and to feel like they were doing the right things. The focus shifted off of God and onto themselves. And by the time Jesus came along, the Pharisees are described in the Gospels as self-righteous, hard-hearted, hypocritical, craving the approval of men, lovers of money, keeping up outward appearances but inwardly corrupt, And if any of this sounds vaguely familiar, the Pharisees are, among other things, the Pharisees are what we are all destined to become apart from the grace of God. Okay? If we start drifting off course, this is the iceberg we're going to hit. Okay? Self-righteous, hard-hearted, no compassion, craving approval. That's the iceberg we're going to hit if we drift off course from God. And the minute we start thinking of the Pharisees as somebody else, we're already halfway to becoming one. Okay? If we find ourselves too often saying, oh, look at those Pharisees. All oh, those people are a bunch of Pharisees. What are Pharisees? Iceberg right ahead! Okay? That's where we're headed as soon as we start getting into the self-righteous way of thinking that that could never be us. You know, the Pharisees are, among other things, kind of a cautionary tale of what we are all going to become apart from the grace of God and the humbling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at what the Pharisees say, it's really kind of absurd. They form this accusation in their minds that doesn't make really any sense at all. Because up till now, they haven't really interacted with Jesus directly that much. They've been kind of watching him from a distance because they're the spiritual leaders, right? They're the ones who are believing strictly observing the word of God. They're considered spiritual leaders. They're kind of watching him. They're kind of questioning him from a distance. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> you know, after the party at Matthew's house, the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with sinners? They don't ask him. They ask the disciples. And so they haven't really talked directly to Jesus yet. But there's this 
opposition starting to form in their minds when they see this exorcism. He casts out demons by the prince of demons, which makes no sense at all, right? I mean, Satan and his demons, God allows them to have a limited amount of power for a limited amount of time, so any influence they're able to exert is a win for Satan. Why would Satan cast out one of his own servants who's doing exactly what Satan wants him to do? That, that makes no sense at all. That's like a quarterback throwing a, deliberately throwing a pass to the other team, not even trying to complete a pass to his own receiver. Let's just throw a pass straight to the other team on purpose. That makes no sense at all in the game of football. And for Satan to undermine his own work is just really absurd. I mean, it's kind of... But, you know, then again, so is sin. Sin is the complete absence of rationality. The Bible says sin is lawlessness. Sin is basically anarchy. It's, sin is spiritual anarchy. It's the complete loss of any kind of order, any kind of perspective, any kind of way God wants things to be. And when people get hard-hearted and, and under the influence of sin, they have the way of saying the strangest, most absurd things. Like in the Gospel of John, in the crucifixion account of the Gospel of John, Pontius Pilate, who's a Roman, says to the crowd of Jews, shall I crucify your king? And the Jews say, we have no king but Caesar. What? Huh? No king but Caesar? Are you kidding me? That'd be like the slaves saying, we have no president but Jefferson Davis. That makes no sense at all. That's totally ludicrously absurd. But so is sin. And people who are hard-hearted and under the influence of sin and self-righteous lose all connection with reality and all connection with God. And you have these things like this accusation, oh, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. That makes no sense at all, apart from being completely blasphemous, which we're going to hear about later. But this thing with the Pharisees is going to give us a little bit of a sneak preview of where this gospel is headed. Um, it's kind of like, you know, with the, with the Star Wars movies. I don't know if anybody's into the Star Wars movies, but However, this, if, you have, if you're watching a Star Wars movie, however it ends, that pretty much tells you where the sequel's going. Um, and in this, in this statement by the Pharisees, this tells us where we're headed. And this is actually going to be the beginning of a conflict that's going to be the chain of events that God uses to ultimately bring Jesus to his death. Now, of course, God is sovereign. God plans all this. But the human chain of events that's going to result in the death of Jesus and, of course, his resurrection starts with this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And this statement by the Pharisees gives kind of an indication of where that is headed. And a couple of chapters later in chapter 12, it's all going to boil over and come to a head. And they're going to talk about this. And, you know, these Pharisees aren't going to be social media weaklings and just lob grenades from a computer screen. They're going to come and talk to Jesus to his face about it. And it's going to boil over. And eventually it's going to result in Jesus' death. But this is just kind of, this is kind of where we're headed. All right, so <clears throat> what's, our, what's our takeaway from this? What can we, what can we take away from this? Yeah. It's off. Um, <clears throat> up till now, in this section of Scripture, we've learned that Jesus has authority over sickness. He has authority over nature. He has authority over the supernatural. He has authority over sin and sinners. And he has authority over life and death. In this passage, we learn that Jesus has authority over eternity. Jesus is the Son of David, the Messiah, the God-man, who is going to bring about salvation, which gives everyone access to eternal life. 
Now, <clears throat> contrary to my Islamic studies professor, yes, God can become flesh. God did become flesh. It happened. Okay, in a few weeks we're going to celebrate when it happened. It's called Christmas. God can become flesh. God did become flesh. Any religion or belief system that says otherwise is false. They're factually incorrect. Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, the king who's going to bring about eternal life for everyone. He, is, he has authority over eternity in addition to everything else. Now, ordinarily, I might just end the sermon there, but in view of what's going on in our country and in the world right now, it seems particularly appropriate to mention the fact, in case anybody's still wondering, that Jesus is not a political messiah. <clears throat> when Jesus first came, the people he interacted with were expecting a primarily political messiah. And the mindset among the people was sort of like, well, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll repent, we'll worship God, we'll do all that, okay, but let's get our country back, all right, first things first, let's get our country back, and then we'll talk about all this religion stuff later. And Jesus is like, no, that's backwards. <laughs> you need to repent and place your faith in God, and then we'll talk about who runs the government. <laughs> so we've got to get our priorities in order here. And so Jesus was not a political Messiah then, and he's not a political Messiah now. And contrary to the way some people talk, the United States of America does not have a national covenant with God the way Israel did, and the church is not a political nation. The church is a spiritual nation. You know, we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're a spiritual nation. And one day this spiritual nation is going to encompass all political and ethnic nations on the face of the earth. That's going to happen, Revelation tells us. Someday the church will have all nations represented, but the church itself is not a political nation, it's a spiritual nation. And I know it's very fashionable to quote Second Chronicles 7.14 every 4th of July, but, you know, <clears throat> the United States of America doesn't have a national covenant we can use to invoke some promise that God made to Israel. And the church does not have a land to heal. We're a spiritual nation. Someday we're going to be made up of every nation, but in the meantime, our calling is to make disciples. You know, someday in the distant future, we're actually going to reach the end of this gospel, Matthew 28, the last three verses, this thing that has become known as the Great Commission. And Jesus is going to tell his disciples and us to go and make disciples of all nations. That's our calling. That's our purpose. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, for those of us who are disciples, let me just say, discipleship, Christian discipleship, affects every area of life. It affects our family, it affects our work, our relationships, our finances, and yes, it affects how we engage in the political process. Absolutely. Christian discipleship absolutely affects how we engage in the political process. Christian discipleship affects who we vote for and how we vote. Christian discipleship affects what causes we advocate for and what causes we advocate against. Christian discipleship also affects how we conduct ourselves as elected officials if any of us should run for office. You know, there's a certain brother in Christ <clears throat> who shall remain nameless that I once served with on a mission trip in the summer of 1993 back in Chicago. Uh, this brother is now a United States senator, and I haven't spoken to him for a long time, but as far as I can tell, he's doing his level best to fulfill his role as a legislator in a way that honors Christ. And it is absolutely a good thing when men and women of God run for office and get elected 
and hopefully bring Christian principles to bear on the governance of this country. That's a good thing. However, as our brother in the Senate is aware, and as I hope we're all aware, the U.S. Senate chamber is not a church, the Oval Office is not the Holy of Holies, and the Supreme Court is not the judgment seat of Christ. The United States of America does not have a covenant with God like Israel did, and Jesus is not a political messiah. Those of us who are intellectual types sometimes get a bad rap for making things way too complicated and talking way over everybody's head. All right, let's keep this simple. Jesus' purpose was to save sinners. Our purpose is to make disciples. That's it. Is that uncomplicated enough? Jesus' purpose was to save sinners. Our purpose is to make disciples. And nothing. Jesus didn't come to earth to overthrow the government. He came to go to the cross and be raised from the dead in order to save sinners. Our purpose is to bring the good news of salvation to people who do not yet know Christ so that they can become disciples. That's pretty much it. Jesus' purpose was to save sinners. Our purpose is to make disciples. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for being able to gather here today and hear from your word. Uh, Thank you for the truths that you've given to us. And we pray that we would be those who go and make disciples, regardless of the political or social conditions. We pray that you will bring a swift end to this pandemic. We trust your will, and we will trust you throughout it, regardless of how it turns out. We just thank you that you've given us this high calling, that you've given us salvation so that we can go and make disciples in your name. Thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.